Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week... I'm talking to theoretical physicist Sean Carroll about the origins of life, meaning and the universe itself in his ambitious new book, The Big Picture. Sean Carroll is a theoretical physicist at Caltech in Pasadena, California, where he researches currently the foundations of quantum mechanics, the arrow of time and the emergence of complexity. He received his PhD in 1983 from Harvard University and has been awarded prizes and fellowships by the National Science Foundation, NASA, the Sloan Foundation and the Royal Society, amongst others. He's the author of numerous books, including From Eternity to Here and The Particle at the End of the Universe, and his latest is The Big Picture on the origins of life, meaning and the universe itself. Sean, welcome back to Little Atoms. Thanks so much for having me. What's the idea behind this book then? Or there's a lot of ideas behind this book. Yeah, there's a lot of ideas, but there's one big overarching idea, which is that there's only one universe. This is the point of view in philosophy circles. It's called naturalism. So there's not like separate realms for the material and the mental and the spiritual or anything like that. There's just one universe. We talk about it in many different ways. We talk about it using a language of physics or chemistry or biology or psychology. And so matching all those together showing how they can all be consistent with each other, how you can have a universe governed by the laws of physics that gives rise to people like us is the basic hope of the book. You're a theoretical physicist, but this book covers, I mean, lots of different subjects, but we could also say everything. Um, <laughs> is, is that a little out of your remit? There are no recipes in the book. If you're looking for uh, cooking tips, that you will not find them there. But there are many other things. Many people do react with a sort of how dare you kind of uh, look on their face when they find out the subtitle of the book. But, you know, it's important to emphasize that even though the subtitle says on the origins of life, meaning in the universe itself, I don't actually know what the origin of life was. I don't actually know what the meaning of life is or how the universe started. I talk about how we can address these questions in this framework of naturalism. How you don't sort of need to look outside the universe to find your answers. That's a good selling point. If you buy this book, I won't answer any of these questions. Yeah, I know. Yeah, at least I try to be very, very upfront about that. 470 pages in, no answers will be provided. Sorry. <laughs> what inspired you to write it then? Why did you want to have a go at such a big and unwieldy subject? Yeah, in some sense, it's kind of like the book I've been thinking about writing my whole life. I've always been interested in not only physics but foundational questions more broadly, philosophy questions, questions of complexity and biology and, and thinking and computation. And I'm firm in my conviction that the universe fits together in a very natural way. There's many different sort of subtexts in the book. One is obviously there's an ongoing debate about atheism and the new atheists and so forth. I kind of didn't want to rehash that debate. I say very little about religion in the book. I say some things about whether or not God exists, but I'm not you know, trying to bash religion in any way. I'm trying to present a positive case for a view of the world, which is that that is held by the large majority of working physicists and philosophers, and yet has not trickled down into the wider world. I think that you know, the work that someone like me does, thinking about the origin of the universe or the fundamental laws of physics, there's no practical application, right? This is not going to give rise to a better cell phone or a cure for cancer or anything like that. The only reason we do it 
is because we're curious about how the world works. And therefore, I think we should not be shy about fitting our work into that bigger context. That's what people really care about. Yeah, well, I think, I mean, obviously the, the origins of life in the universe would have been a big enough subject to attempt to tackle itself. But I think it's the addition of that meaty word meaning to that <laughs> subtitle is the thing that's that's the most interesting. I mean, you've sort of just explained why really, but again, just why tackle that as well as those other things? Yeah, I mean, I think that among naturalists, among people like myself who believe that there is only one world, uh, there's still tremendous room for disagreement. A couple of years ago, I organized a workshop called Moving Naturalism Forward. And we had all sorts of people there, you know, philosophers, physicists, biologists, Steven Weinberg, Daniel Dennett, Richard Dawkins, a whole bunch of people. And we disagree about a whole bunch of things, even though we all started from the same kind of naturalistic starting point. So one of those major points of contentions or, or exploration is if we do live in a natural universe that is governed by laws of physics, laws of nature, and those laws just sort of chug forward in time without any particular goal in mind or purpose. Where does purpose come from for human beings? Where can it possibly come from? Why does life mean anything at all? And again, I don't actually provide like here is the answer, but I kind of sort of try to explain the framework in which answers can be found. So I say very specifically that, you know, there's the old saw about teaching a person to fish and they fish forever as opposed to giving them a fish and they, they eat for a day. Uh, this kind of naturalism that I'm advocating neither gives you fish nor teaches you how to fish. It points out that there are things called fish that you might want to go looking for if that's what you're interested in doing. We'll come back to naturalism itself in a little while, but just taking a step back. So as we've already we've already established, there are areas of this book that are not the areas you study. So let's talk about how you went about writing it, how you researched it, and, and I guess specifically who you spoke to. What sort of people did you get the advice of when you were writing it? Well, that was that was the most fun part of the whole thing. It's certainly true that I'm not an expert in every section of the book. I like to think that there isn't anyone in the world who is an expert on every section of the book. So I also think that these different disciplines should be talking to each other. So I think it's okay. When I talk about biology or neuroscience or philosophy, I'm not lecturing from on high in any way. I uh, am doing my best to report what I've learned. And I did get to go around and knock on people's doors, you know, philosophers, neuroscientists. I had my brain scanned at NYU. David Popel, professor of neuroscience there, was nice enough to put me in his magnetoencephalograph and measure the magnetic fields coming out of my brain as I had various thoughts because my neurons were firing charged particles around. I got to visit the lab of Jack Shostak, Nobel Prize winner in biology, who uh, is now working on the origin of life. So had lunch with Dan Dennett and talked about naturalism and the manifest image of the world and so forth. So it was, it was really just like, you know, imagine that you get to take all the college courses you ever wanted to take, but with the best names around the world, and they, they were happy to talk to you for a couple hours at a time. It was really enormous fun. So the book set out in the main in six sections that contain smaller chapters. Let's talk about that format. Why did you decide to do that? Well, I kind of knew, despite my initial hopes, that the book would be like small and manageable in size. It soon became clear that was not going to be the case. It was going to sprawl out quite a bit and in a good way, you know, in a way that there's a lot to say. I actually cut quite a bit from the final manuscript. There's still fun things that didn't make it into the book. But to compensate for that in some way, I thought that, you know, it's not because it's not like one big answer to all these questions. It naturally sort of lent itself to bite sized chapters as an organizational strategy, because you're sort of making this point and then making this point and then talking about how they fit together. So I really wanted the book to be as approachable as possible for a 470 page treatise on the philosophical and scientific underpinnings of naturalism. So short chapters, two or 3,000 words each that you could read on a subway ride to work or something like that, written in a style that is hopefully, you know, engaging and not too technical. I did have both my wife, Jennifer Ouellette, who is a professional writer and editor, and my editor, uh, Stephen Morrow. They were both very good at saying, like, no, 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 this section just bogs down, cut that out, or... The one section that really bogged down, but I loved too much, where I explained what all the particles of nature are and how they interact with each other, that got moved to an appendix and put into very tiny font. 
typical for uh, somebody who studies quantum theory and, and core theory. Well, I thought it was important, exactly. No one else quite agreed with me. But there it is. It's in the book. Well, there is a bit of physics in there as well, so we're going to we'll get to that in a bit. But we're going to, we'll go through those six parts one at a time in order, um, as you would expect. But before we do, more basic than that, I wanted to just say something about the ways in which we think about the fundamental nature of reality at a sort of basic level. So I want you to tell us ontology. What what does that mean? What's an ontology? Good. Yeah. I mean, so ontology is you know one of the big areas within philosophy. It's technically defined as the study of the nature of being. But in practice, when philosophers talk about this ontology or that ontology, they mean, you know, in your particular view of the world, what are the ingredients? What really exists? What are the building blocks out of which everything else is made? So in classical Newtonian mechanics, for example, in the physics that you learn in your early physics course in high school or college, the ontology might be there's space and there's time and there's particles that have positions and velocities. That's your ontology. Whereas in quantum mechanics, your ontology might be, well, there are wave functions that are spread all throughout the universe. And there's a difference between a naturalist ontology, which has just the physical world, and a non-naturalist ontology, which might have other layers. Maybe there's a spiritual world or a separate level layer of consciousness or something like that. So your ontology is just what the world is fundamentally made of. Well, at a non-quantum level, I'd suggest that the ontology of most of the people that are going to be listening to this interview would be naturalism, which which you've already mentioned. But I guess for the benefit of any that, that aren't, just recap for us what classical naturalism means. Yeah, naturalism, very simple, is just there is only one world, the natural world. That's basically the whole definition right there. But for all intents and purposes, there's an implicit idea that this natural world obeys laws, what we call the laws of nature, and that those laws and the behavior of the natural world can be examined empirically, basically through the methods of science, uh, through doing experiments, proposing hypotheses, making observations. That is to say, not by sitting and thinking about it, or not through revelation. And those may or may not be you know, technically part of the definition of naturalism, but they go hand in hand with it. And then you introduce the concept of poetic naturalism. So, I mean, I guess let's talk about what poetic naturalism is by talking about what it isn't. Why is there a need to have poetic naturalism as opposed to just classical naturalism? Well, like I said, there are naturalists. Naturalists generally disagree with each other about some important things. I think that's good and healthy, right? I mean, it's not as if we were pretending to have all the answers figured out. So there's more or less a spectrum. And on one side, there's the really hardcore mad dog naturalists who want to say that the only thing that really exists, the only part of the world that qualifies as real, is the most fundamental level of reality, the fundamental particles and fields that make up you and me. And the stuff that is sort of made from them, the higher level things, tables and chairs and so forth, they don't, they're not really real, right? They're just kind of illusions. Certainly, even if you believe tables and chairs are okay, certainly consciousness or free will or morality, these are illusions in, in this way of thinking. And then on the other end of the naturalist spectrum, there are kind of augmented naturalists who think that there's only one world, the natural world, but there's more to it than its physical properties. There might be objective moral truths, or there might be objectively real mental properties that give rise to consciousness over and above the physical properties of matter. And I want to find myself in between those two extremes. So I want to say that things like consciousness and morality are real, but they're not separate parts of the world. They are like tables and chairs. They are ways of talking about the fundamental stuff of reality that find an important role in our everyday lives and certainly qualify as real but they're not separate from the real world. And in the same way as that, you know, I can't remember who said it, but you know, when I bang my when I bang my leg on a table, it certainly feels real. To myself, my consciousness and my, you know, understanding of of my being feels entirely real as well. Of course it does. Right. So for better or for worse, you therefore, if you're going to write a book like mine, have to talk about why certain things count as real and certain other things don't. 
And, you know, I love talking about that stuff. It's not everyone's cup of tea. That's another reason to have lots of short chapters that you can skip. That's not what you're really interested in reading about. But yes. So, of course, one does stub one's toe on rocks and chairs. Is that really an argument that rocks and chairs are real? You know, you can go back and forth. You could say, well, no, that's just an argument that that's your mistaken image of the world. But now we know better because we've done science, right? Aristotle said that to keep something moving, you had to keep pushing it. It was a fundamental tenet of Aristotelian physics. Now, on the one hand, we now say that's not true, right? We think that there's something called conservation of momentum. And if you're out there in empty space moving all by yourself, you just move forever. You don't slow down or speed up. On the other hand, in our everyday life, in our environment, if there's some object in front of you on the table and you push it, it will move. And if you stop pushing it, it will stop. So he was completely correct. So these sort of commonsensical everyday explorations of what is and is not real don't quite measure up. We do need to think a little bit more about what to qualify in different categories in our ontology. <laughs> I'm Caitlin Doty. You're listening to Resonance FM, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. I want to move us on to the the first section of the book, then Cosmos. This section of the book is, is I guess, mainly concerned with who's pushing it or, or or who isn't pushing it. How does I guess what we can observe in the universe by doing science tell us that naturalism is right? Is the right worldview? Right. So I try to make the point that, you know, when we do science in general, or even just thinking carefully about the world, the goal is not to prove things in the same way that a mathematician or a logician would prove things. In science or in empirical investigations, we creep up on our best ways of describing the world. You know, we go, this is a good idea, maybe has an 80% chance of being right, and then we collect more data, and maybe it's now 98% chance of being right, and then 99.9% chance of being right, and so forth. So you don't say, okay, here is the definitive knockdown argument for naturalism. You say, here are all the various reasons that have an accumulated effect that give us the idea that this is on the right track. So you're right. In the beginning of the book, uh, Cosmos, it is mostly not about a lecture in modern cosmology. It's about the various features we've discovered of how our universe works that explain to us that it just kind of percolates along all by itself. You know, the universe does not need a pusher, it does not need a creator, it does not need a sustainer, it just works by itself. And part of this is not, you know, something you prove, it's something that becomes more plausible when you learn, for example, that momentum is conserved, that things just move by themselves. That's a very natural state of being. When you learn, for example, that the arrow of time, the difference between the past and the future, is not an intrinsic feature of time itself, but something that arises from conditions near the Big Bang. Taken together, all these different features sort of say, you know, yeah, okay, I can see that maybe the universe isn't guided or directed or pushed. Maybe it's just kind of happening. Well, time's arrow, as you've just mentioned, that obviously has a bearing on the way that we perceive the world in terms of like, you know, we think in terms of cause and effect. We see something happen. We think it was caused by something else. And that sort of part of how we perceive it in time, right? Yeah, exactly. In fact, uh, they're intimately connected. One of the things that I say in the book and in talks and so forth that people take time to adjust to see if they really think I'm crazy or not is that cause and effect are not there at the level of fundamental physics and the laws of nature. We think that the idea that every effect has a cause sounds like something absolutely indispensable and primitive, but it's not even true at the level of the laws of physics. It's not that anything goes at the level of laws of physics, but that what goes is just following a pattern 
rather than being a sequences of causes and effects. And I quote Bertrand Russell in the book, you know, saying this very elegantly. But on the other hand, just like tables and chairs, causes and effects are absolutely manifest in our everyday lives. So part of the work one has to do to be a good naturalist is to reconcile the presence of causes at the human scale with the absence of them at the level of fundamental physics. And you mentioned, obviously, the Big Bang, and this wasn't always the case. I mean, time... I mean, it's not really accurate to talk about time starting at the Big Bang, or is it? Honestly, we don't know. I mean, this is something I try to be very honest about, especially because my cosmological colleagues and myself in the past have been sloppy about this in popular discussions. Um, We sometimes hear people say that the Big Bang is the beginning of the universe, that there is nothing before the Big Bang, that talking about what happened before the Big Bang is like talking about what is north of the North Pole. All of these statements might be true, but we honestly don't know. The Big Bang is not the beginning of the universe, it's the end of our theoretical understanding of the universe. So there might be something before the Big Bang, there might not be, it might be the first moment of the universe's history. Either way, the question, could the universe just exist in accordance with the laws of physics, seems to be answered positively. Yes, it could. But we don't know how it actually did start or whether it's been going forever. Moving us on to the second part of the book, which is called Understanding. Now, you've just, you sort of mentioned there that obviously the concept of time is different at the, you know, at the molecular level, at our level, at the, at the level of the universe. Those things, I mean, they work together. They don't contradict each other, do they? Well, they certainly should work together. That's what we want to be true. But the interesting thing is that in some ways they seem very different from each other. You know, this existence of cause and effect is one such way. Um, The existence of an arrow of time is another such way. And people have a pretty easy time when, if you tell them, you know, there's no arrow of time at the level of fundamental physics, but there is in the macroscopic world. They get that. But then that becomes a little bit more problematic when you say, well, okay, there's no free will or ability to make choices in the microscopic world. What about at the level of human beings? To me, to a poetic naturalist who thinks that there's only one world but many ways of talking about the world, there's no trouble at all in saying that human beings have free will. That is an emergent higher level phenomenon just like the arrow of time where cause and effect is. But doing the hard work to showing how it's all consistent is a non-trivial task. In this chapter, you're talking about, I mean, I guess a, a deceptively simple question. So that has bedeviled all of us through all of humans' quest for knowledge, which is how can we tell if something is real? I guess we should talk about abduction, and I don't mean kidnapping. Yeah, I know. I, I made that pun. I don't know whether anyone gets it or not uh, in the book. But abduction is something, in fact, when I wrote about it on my blog, someone thought it was a typo. But we get told in our education somewhere about deduction and induction as sort of logical moves one can make to draw conclusions from different sets of premises. Deduction being, you know, Socrates was a man, all men are mortal, therefore Socrates is mortal. Induction being, I see this swan and it's white, that swan and it's white, that swan and it's white, therefore all swans are white. And there's been arguments back and forth for a long time over how science is supposed to work. Is it more deductive or inductive? And increasingly, philosophers say that it's neither one of that. It's this thing called abduction, which is inference to the best explanation. It's not a logical airtight demonstration. It's considering all the different options and saying which of these different theories of the world or the phenomenon you're thinking about really provides the best explanation really gives you something to work with. I mean, Aristotle was not wrong when he said that you need to keep pushing things in the immediate world around you to keep them moving, but that didn't lead anywhere. That didn't help you build a more comprehensive theory of physics. When Galileo comes along and says, I've done experiments and actually things just keep going forever if you ignore friction and so forth, someone might say, yes, but friction exists. But Galileo's viewpoint was much more fruitful for building something like classical mechanics. I think this would be a good point as well to introduce um, one of the characters in this book, the Reverend Thomas Bayes. Tell us who he was and, and what he did. It was very delightful to sort of share all these stories of these characters throughout history that you know don't necessarily get the public attention they should. So Thomas Bayes is one of them. He was a 
relatively minor Presbyterian minister. He wrote a couple of books. One was purely theological. One was defending Newton's calculus back when it kind of needed defending. Calculus was a very controversial thing when it came along. But he also wrote some scribbles about probability theory, how you change your idea of what the probability of something is when new information comes along. And these were published after he died, and they were elaborated by Pierre-Simon Laplace and others. And now in modern science, you know, this is how we do probability. Bayes more or less figured it out. There's still arguments back and forth between Bayesians and what are called frequentists about the fundamental nature of what probability really is. But everyone agrees that mathematically, Bayes has a theorem, which we cleverly call Bayes' theorem, which answers the question, if you have some probabilities assigned to different possibilities, but then you learn something new, how do those probabilities change? So how did that change how we looked, how we understand the reality around us. I mean, you've already mentioned that this is like post-Newton. So Newton's, I always I always want to say Newton invented gravity. <laughs> Newton's, you know, elucidated gravity. So this is not at the, you know, the, at the dawn of time. How does Bayes' theorem change then how we do science? Well, you want to, you know, be presented with various possible ways the world could work. So for example, the orbit of Mercury didn't exactly fit Isaac Newton's predictions. And there was more than one possible way to explain that. One way was that there was an extra planet called Vulcan, which was orbiting inside the orbit of Mercury. Once Einstein came along, there was another way of explaining it. Einstein said that Newtonian gravity itself was incorrect. So you might say, well, I give a certain probability to each theory before I do anything at all. And then I go about and collect more data. You know, I look at the deflection of light from the sun, which was a prediction of Einstein's theory. I look at the sort of extra things that are predicted by this theory, that how they fit in together with other things we know, like general relativity, Einstein's theory, is compatible with special relativity, which is very important. So Bayes gives us a quantitative way to take our prior probabilities, whatever we sort of attach to the hypotheses before we know anything, and then update them along the way. And if you do it right, you never reach 100% or 0%. Because there's always some probability, no matter how incredibly tiny it might be, that you've just made a terrible sequence of unfortunate mistakes. So you should always be open to new information and new data changing your mind in the future. And the other thing to introduce here is you talk in this section about uncertainty and that's both just in the fact that you know we don't know everything but also and latterly you know it's, it's it's fundamentally built into into quantum theory but we shouldn't be scared about the fact that we don't know everything either should we no i mean i hope we shouldn't be because we will never know everything that's okay <laughs> you know there will always be some things that are the universe is much bigger than our brains so it's impossible to know everything so yeah i think we shouldn't i think that um there's a line i try to tread very carefully in the book because we don't know everything and we will never know everything. Even the things we know, we will never know with complete certainty. On the other hand, there are things we know with quite high confidence, and there's a lot of them. And you know, they have important implications for how the world works. There's sort of a lazy way to go to an extreme either way, saying we know essentially everything or we know basically nothing. And to sort of be careful about what it is we do and do not know is a little bit of an argument. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode, and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. 
Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Sean Carroll. We're talking about his book, The Big Picture on the Origins of Life, Meaning and the Universe Itself. And we'll move on to the the third part of the book, Sean, which is essence. And there is a, as I mentioned, there's quite a big dollop of of physics in, in this section. But it's mainly concerned with, you know, that old idea of why is there something rather than nothing? Why why does the universe exist at all? Yeah, I think that, you know, this is where I got to indulge my physics self a little bit and talk about quantum mechanics and quantum field theory and what we call the core theory, which is the combination of the particle physics and the forces, you know, the strong force, the weak force, etc. But also gravity. There's this impression that we physicists often give to people that gravity and quantum mechanics don't get along at all. And what that really should say is that we don't have a complete theory of quantum gravity. We don't know what happens inside black holes or at the Big Bang. But if you want to do quantum gravity in the solar system, where gravity is weak and and gentle and relatively under control, there's no trouble whatsoever in fitting gravity into our quantum mechanical understanding of the world. So that's a wonderful thing that we do understand the core theory of physics of the everyday world around us. The origin of the universe, which is a wonderful question to ask and think about, is something we don't understand. And I try to make the point, and this is something where there's some individual choice as to whether people are going to find this satisfying or not, that the question of why does the universe exist at all is one for which the answer might be because it just does. (laughs) And this goes back to the previous sections of the book where we explain why there are certain contexts in which it's okay to talk about the reasons why things exist or act the way they do. Sometimes there isn't the right context to even ask those questions. So for the universe, there might be a deeper reason why it exists, and we're welcome to go look for it. But at the end of the day, we have to be open to the possibility that the answer is just, that's the way it is. You just mentioned, or give an explanation of core theory. Um, Just say something about quantum field theory as well for us before we move on. Again, I'm going to say the same thing over and over again, but quantum field theory is something where we scientists don't do nearly as good a job as we should in explaining it in a wider context. You you can buy popular physics books about relativity or the multiverse or string theory, but almost none about quantum field theory. And yet, quantum field theory is what every working physicist has at their fingertips. That's, you know, how we think about the world. And it's basically the statement that the world is made of fields. Fields being sort of the opposite of a particle. A particle has a location in space. You know where it is, and it's nowhere else. A field is spread all throughout space. You know, you think about the gravitational field or the electric field or something like that. And the connection is through the word quantum, the connection between fields and particles. Because when you take a field filling all of space, you set it vibrating up and down a little bit, and then you observe it, In quantum mechanics, what you're going to see when you observe the vibrating fields are individual particles. They become quantized into sort of packets of energy, which we call particles. So if you ever were told way back when that, or if you ever posed the question, is light a wave or a particle? And you were probably given evidence that it's one of each, right? There's sometimes one and sometimes the other. The answer is it's a wave. That's just the answer. But if you look at it carefully enough, 
It looks like particles. That's the essence of quantum field theory. How does quantum theory, core theory, rule out things like you know, psychic phenomena and life after death and stuff like that? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's central because the core theory is the most important thing that we have in this category of something we do know, something we do understand. It's not the final theory of physics by any stretch of the imagination. There are plenty of things in physics we don't understand. But what quantum field theory gives us is a way of knowing where our theory works and where it doesn't. So if there were new influences, new particles or fields or forces that we haven't yet discovered that would be somehow relevant to our everyday lives, to our biology or to explaining why tables and chairs are solid or something like that, quantum field theory guarantees that we would have noticed them. It tells us how to search for them. And we have searched. We've searched for new particles, for new forces. There's no way for them to hide. Or rather, the ways for them to hide, making them like too heavy to make or too energetic or too short-lived or too weakly interacting with us, all imply that they wouldn't be important for our everyday lives. So the core theory and its foundations in quantum field theory guarantees that we know the particles and forces that you and I are made out of. And, and that knowledge is going to remain true. It's still going to be true a million years from now. We're not going to change our minds down the road. It always seems, I mean, a bit foolhardy in science to say that, you know, we know everything or there's nothing else to discover. And people have come a cropper saying that thing many times over the years. I'm not saying, obviously, that there's a, you know, we're suddenly going to discover out there a, a force or something that explains psychics. But, you know, you, you wrote a book about the Higgs boson, that were a new thing. They haven't shut down the Large Hadron Collider yet. It's not been mothballed. So things are discovered. Absolutely. I mean, like I said, we are nowhere close to understanding all of physics. We do not know everything. I'm not saying we know everything. I'm not saying we discovered everything there is to be discovered. I'm not saying that physics is nearly done. I'm not saying we will soon have discovered everything there is to be discovered. I'm saying we discovered some things... And, much more importantly, the things we've discovered make a complete account of what makes up you and me. That's the crucial part. It's not that we've discovered everything. It's that anything that we do discover in the future, the fact that it has hidden from us for this long implies that it can't be important for our everyday lives. I want to move on to the, the next part, which is complexity, um, the fourth part of the book. Now... One of the things you talk about in, in the book is entropy. Entropy is a thing that you know people will know, means that the universe gradually over time becomes more disordered. And yet, we exist, we're here talking, we're complex beings. Is that not a contradiction? Right. I think, I mean, the answer is no, it's not a contradiction. But I think it's a great question to ask. And there's sort of two levels at which this question gets asked. One is, there's a very naive creationist move that starts by saying, you know, the universe is just winding down, second law of thermodynamics, and yet we arose as complex beings here on Earth. That's a contradiction. This is blatantly wrong, obviously hilariously incorrect. Everyone has pointed out many, many times because the second law of thermodynamics only says that entropy goes up in closed systems. The Earth and its biosphere is nowhere close to being a closed system. We get energy from the sun in a low entropy form, we radiate it back out to the universe. So there's no contradiction there. But there's a more sophisticated challenge, which says even if there's no contradiction between low entropy here on the Earth's biosphere and the second law of thermodynamics, that doesn't still explain why complex systems did evolve. I mean, they haven't evolved on the moon, right, or on the surface of the sun or whatever. So can we do a little bit more in saying not just that it's allowed for life to exist, but that it makes sense for life to exist? And I think the answer is yes. I think that you can actually show, certainly in, in at least very simple examples, why not only can complexity come to be, can complex structures come into existence even though entropy is increasing, but in some very real sense, complexity comes to be because entropy is increasing. If entropy had already been very, very high or very, very low and stayed there, that's when you wouldn't be able to have complexity. That's where simplicity rules the day. It's only when entropy is in between and changing that you can both construct and then maintain these complex, organized, 
collections of individual moving parts that work together for some helpful reason. The obvious example of that would then be would be evolution. Yeah. So as you get the impression, it's a big book with lots of stuff in it. So um, once you get life going, that's a big step. That's actually the part we understand not very well at all, why life started at all. And I talk in the book about different hypothetical scenarios to get that going. There's metabolism first that says that energy and entropy are most important. And there's also replication first scenarios where information is most important, probably in the form of RNA some molecule that can both do functional things inside a primitive cell, but also reproduce itself and hand down its genetic information. Whichever came first, they're both important. You're going to need both of them. And once you get that RNA, once you get some way of handing down information from generation to generation, then Darwinian evolution is more or less inevitable. Darwin, all it needs is a way to hand down information and a way to introduce small random changes in that information. And that way is just that, you know, copying and replication are not, not perfect. It's a, it's a messy world out there. So that sort of comes along for free. And once that happens, if the life forms don't instantly die away, there is going to be, you know, some are going to be more successful in their environments than others. So evolution sort of naturally protects future generations in the sense that the ones that succeed and hand down their genomes within the population are the ones that have the most success reproducing. And what you find there is that the genomes, this huge amount of genetic information, are basically like exploring a whole bunch of different possibilities. It's almost like a computer doing a search for a certain problem answer. And it turns out to be a pretty efficient way of searching the different space of possibilities. So once again, it is not surprising that once that process gets started, you end up with very complex, intricate things like ourselves. And this also brings us to, I mean, something that should make any naturalist's sirens go off. The idea of purpose. It's, can we talk about purpose without it being just anthropomorphism, really? Yeah, but, you know, I think that um, it's the other way around in some sense. If you are a naturalist and you think that um, human beings are part of the natural world, then you need to ask yourself, uh, why are we even allowed to talk about purpose when we talk about human beings? I mean, my friend Scott Derrickson, who is not a naturalist at all, but you know, he made the quip, of course the universe has purposes. I'm part of the universe and I have purposes, right? You know, I do things for reasons. And if you are a naturalist, why are you allowed to say that? I think the answer is because given the emergent existence of human beings as these very complex uh, creatures in the natural world, the best way we have of talking about them is a language of thoughts and intentions and choices and purposes. And if that's true, then there's nothing mystical or intrinsically human about purposes. It's just a useful way of talking about what human beings are doing. And if that's true, then why isn't it a useful way of talking about other things in the universe? So I have no trouble talking about purposes in the universe. For example, I use the example of the long neck of the giraffe. Is the purpose of the giraffe's neck to help it chew leaves on the tops of trees? Sure, why not? That doesn't mean that it was designed for that purpose. It just means that that provides an explanation for why it exists. You also talk about the idea of a fine-tuned universe. So what's that concept? Well, there are people who point out that we have a universe described by a various large number of parameters, you know, the masses of all the particles, the physical conditions of our universe and so forth. And had those conditions been substantially different, you know, had the mass of the electron been a, a very different number, it's conceivable that complex structures like we living beings, based on organic chemistry and so forth, would not have happened at all. I find this very difficult to judge the truth of this claim because I don't know what the universe would really look like. I think that, you know, who knows what other ways there might be to build complex structures if the laws of physics were different. But it's at least plausible, you know, it's at least conceivable that the actual values of our parameters allow for complexity in a much greater variety than other parameters would. And if so, then that's, then we say the universe is fine-tuned to allow for the existence of life or complexity or something like that. And I both make the case, I try to make the case, that on the one hand, naturalism has a very easy explanation for this in terms of the anthropic principle and the multiverse. And this is often used as an argument for the existence of God. 
because God wanted living beings to come into existence. So he chose the parameters of the universe to make it happen. But that only makes sense if you think that what life is fundamentally is a natural phenomenon. Life, as, as a naturalist thinks about it, is a complicated chemical reaction. It's not some spiritual extra force. And the fine-tuning argument says, if the parameters of the universe were different, this complicated chemical reaction wouldn't happen. But most people who want to make that argument don't believe that life is a complicated chemical reaction. They believe there's something extra in addition to it. There's something, there's a, an immaterial soul that attaches to living beings. And immaterial souls don't need to attach to this or that complicated chemical reaction. They can attach to whatever they want. You don't need to fine-tune the universe if that's your view of life. So I think that as an argument for something other than naturalism, the fine-tuning argument doesn't really persuade very much. I'm Hannah Fry, you're listening to Resonance FM, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. We're going to stay with that, the concept of the, you know, the immaterial soul or some other undiscovered force or particle or whatever in the and then going into the next section, which is on thinking, and specifically on consciousness. And you talk about whether or not consciousness can be explained by the existing laws of physics that we know because again a lot of people think that there must be something else out there that we just haven't figured out yet that explains consciousness yeah that's right and so here is yet yet again an example where i don't provide the answer i don't have the right theory for how consciousness started or even what consciousness is and in some sense it's a very philosophical section of the book because i'm not trying to say here's what consciousness is here's the theory of the brain and how it works I want to say that when we do understand what consciousness is, it will be a theory of the brain and how it works. It will not be a theory of some extra physical stuff that is affecting the brain. And so I go through the various objections to that point of view, that sort of physics-based view of what human beings and their conscious selves are, and show they really don't carry the weight. A lot of them are just arguments from incredulity, that they seem like, you know, a mere computer wouldn't be able to have the feelings and emotions and understanding that I do. Therefore, consciousness must be something else. And I don't think that that is a really very persuasive viewpoint. There's a chapter in this section called Are Photons Conscious? And it, it introduces this fascinating idea, panpsychism, that I've never come across before. I, it sounds insane, but <laughs> this is... We're not talking about, you know, this is not someone who's written this to you on a, on a ink bean ink. Right. This is, you know, there's, there's legitimate people that think this. So tell us, tell us what it is. Some of the biggest names, you know, both philosophy and, and neuroscientists have jumped onto the panpsychism bandwagon. And it's basically the idea that everything's a little bit conscious. So I admire the panpsychists in some way because they have a viewpoint that starts by saying, Consciousness can't be purely physical. They just don't buy that that is possible. You know, that the experience that we have inside of not just seeing the color red, but experiencing the redness of red, that inner subjective experience can't be reduced to just ordinary matter in motion. There has to be some extra quality. So maybe it's not a truly immaterial soul. Maybe it's just that the physical particles that make us up have mental properties in addition to their physical properties. And if you believe that, so I mean, that's a happily respectable thing, but then there's a sort of reductio ab absurdum here, which is that, you know, if those mental properties exist in us now, in our electrons and our protons and our neutrons, and they only sort of come to life when they're in the human brain, then they, they must have existed all along. You know, mental properties didn't start a few hundred thousand years ago, so they must have existed in a few seconds after the Big Bang. 
at that point, it was just a whole bunch of particles flying around individually. So if you're intellectually honest, and this is your viewpoint, you're led to this panpsychic statement that even an electron or a photon has a little bit of consciousness, and it just sort of isn't very noticeable yet. To me, you then say, and of course that's absurd, so I, I no longer believe that, but these guys are sticking by their guns. But again, does that not imply somehow that the end result of the universe is supposed to be us, or is that, do they not mean that? I don't think it necessarily means that. I mean, someone like David Chalmers, who is one of the world's leading philosophers of consciousness, describes himself as a naturalist, but not a physicalist. So he's a naturalist. There's only one world, the natural world. But there are two different features of the natural world. It's physical self and also it's mental property. And so I, I don't believe that. I don't, I don't think I think it's the physical world is all that there is. But the mental properties don't need to be like put there for a reason or aiming towards some higher goal or anything like that. They are just help. They're explanatory. Now, I think maybe what you're getting at is something that I'm sympathetic with, which is that you know, if we hadn't come into existence, if we human beings hadn't evolved, what a waste those mental properties would have been. You know, they would never really done anything. So to me, I tried in the book to be fair to that point of view, but I'm really not very sympathetic to it. We've come to the, the last section now, which is called caring. Brings us back to that, you know, that problematic word in the subtitle, meaning. And basically, how do we, uh, how do we construct meaning in a you know, dark, pointless, lonely universe? Exactly. Are there objective moral truths? No. <laughs> <laughs> that is to say, my Bayesian credence is quite low that there are objective moral truths in the universe. And, you know, I used to think otherwise. Um, this is something I've changed my mind about. I think that among many naturalists, many atheists, many modern scientists and philosophers, there is an enormous reluctance to kind of go all the way and just admit that the universe is just physical stuff evolving. They want to say that, in addition, we can found our notions of right and wrong on scientific observations of the world in the same way that we found our theories of the physical behavior of matter on observations of the world. And very famously, David Hume argued a long time ago that this was cheating. You cannot derive an ought from an is. You just sort of observe the world and you, no judgments ever enter into your scientific description of the world. But there are many, many people, including some very brilliant and, and smart people, um, who think otherwise and who want to found some morally uh, objective truths in the reality of the natural world. So I think that, you know, that's just wishful thinking. I think it doesn't quite work. I think that in every one of the attempts, if you sit down and go through it, you always find that they cheat one way or another. There's some point in the argument where they say, and of course, we all know that this is right and this is wrong. <laughs> and, and that's cheating, because we don't all know that. Once you bring out that assumption in the clear light of day, we talk about it and we realize, well, it's not always true. And some people are going to agree with it. Some people are not. And at the end of the day, that's OK. It's OK to think that what morality is, is based on what human beings aspire to and care about, rather than objective truths about the measurable physical world. And indeed, at the end of this book, or nearly at the end, before you before you sneak in the appendix of <laughs> of hard physics, you have a you have a stab at a sort of ten commandments. That's right. So let's go towards the end of the interview, talking about those ways in which we can live better. I guess. Yeah, you know, and this is going to be something where again, people are going to be disappointed because they're not ten commandments; they're what I call ten considerations, because I actually teased people who fall into, who give into the very human tendency or temptation to give out commandments, to, to make up lists of 10 things that tell other people how to behave. And a good poetic naturalist realizes that how to behave or how to live a meaningful, purposeful life is not something that is objectively measurable or establishable. It's something that is subjective and constructed by human beings. So rather than handing out commandments, I say, well, here are some things to keep in mind while you are deciding how you want to live your life. And they're basically things that I've rehearsed, you know, elsewhere in the book and, and sort of since I'm not telling people how to make their own lives meaningful, I'm hoping that we can all sort of get inspiration 
from the universe in different ways and then choose our paths on the basis of what the universe tells us. Well, let's just look at a couple of those points. The first one is life isn't forever. Yeah, that's an important one. Um, I think that if you believe the world is made of physical stuff, like I do, and that includes us human beings, then when our physical bodies stop working at the moment of death, we as people stop existing. So there's no afterlife, there's no reward or punishment after the fact. And to me, that's not a small deal, right? I mean, that is as important a, an understanding of what the world truly is as we have in human nature. So to really internalize that and to really understand that the uh, years and seconds and minutes we have here on Earth are all that exists for us is perhaps the single most important thing we have to accept if we're going to successfully deal with what we should do in our lives. And then another one I wanted to talk about, which I particularly like, is there's no natural way to be. Yeah, I think, and this is another one which uh, naturalists tend to, I think, stumble around with, because we live in a world where certain things happen, certain things don't. There's a there's what's called the naturalistic fallacy, which is that you know you, you tend to think that if this is the way things seem to happen in the world, maybe it's the right way for them to happen. And there's that's a leap. That's exactly what David Hume was arguing us against. That you know, no, 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 you can't just say that. It's just what does happen. And this is very, very relevant at a very important political and social level, right? We're having this argument right now about sexual identity and transgenderism and things like that. And it's not hard to find quotes, because I found the quotes and they're in the book, by people who believe that what is male and what is female is just an absolute category given by nature that we're not allowed to argue with. And many people think this. Um, some of my best friends think this. And I'm just trying to make the point that, that you know, what, what exists in the world is not male and female. What exists is quantum mechanical wave functions. And tables and chairs exist, but that's because they are useful for us to talk in a certain way. So male and female exist only to the extent that they are a useful way for us to talk about the world. If we learn more about the world, such as certain people have a mismatch between their psychological identification and their genetic background or their physiology, then we should adapt to that. We should not insist that they're doing it wrong or that they are constructed incorrectly. We should improve our ways of talking about the world. And the final one then, just to, just to see us out of the interview, reality guides us, which is the last of these 10 and I think is a, is a good lesson to learn. So what do you mean by that? Well, I think so. I mean, probably no one would argue that reality guides us, right? I, mean, I hope no one's going to argue against that. But again, you know, if you do make this leap to accept that there are no objective ways given to us by the world that say this is the right way to behave, this is the wrong way to behave, you can still, you're not stuck with your own predetermined instincts and emotions, right? I mean, we're all born with things we like more and things we like less. But we're all also self-reflective, rational beings. We can interrogate our own desires and what we care about and try to make them better and try to adapt to what other people care about. And then one of the things to do along the way is to look at the universe and see what it does to judge what is true and what is false the best we can, especially because we're not especially rational. Human beings are subject to all sorts of cognitive biases and so forth. But if we try to be honest with ourselves, try to figure out how the world really works, that can hopefully nudge us, inspire us, give us some clues or ideas or inspirations to become better people by our own standards. I've been talking to Sean Carroll. We've been talking about his book, The Big Picture, on the origins of life, meaning, and the universe itself. It's out now from Dutton in the US, and it's out, I think, in the autumn in the UK, is it, Sean? I believe it's September from One World. Okay. Sean, thank you very much for taking the time to tell me about it. Thanks so much for having me here, Neil. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. The show is supported by 89up and hosted by Positive Internet. You can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. You can find old interviews, new journalism and more on our relaunched website, littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. <laughs> 